was just sitting there uh, talking to Kathy, and I've been doing this for about 20 years now, and uh, I said to her, every week as I sit here and wait for the slide to change to let me know that I need to get up, I get terribly, terribly nervous, and uh, I just appreciate that God is, is faithful through all of that. Hey, I want to tell you a, a little story here uh, about uh, our church family. I want to take you back to to May 5th, 2004. It was a, that day, that particular day was a, a milestone in the life of our church family. On, the, on that memorable Wednesday, I signed the settlement papers that made Living Water Community Church the, the legal owner of the uh, land of which this church campus now resides on. And, and I remember walking away from uh, the settlement and I just completely blown away. I'm saying to myself, how in the world is this possible? I, I mean, we're a church, God, that is only three years old. How in the world can we end up with 28 wooded acres of property right outside the city limits of Harrisburg, the area where we want to minister, uh, complete with a beautiful creek that just, you know, finishes off the whole name Living Water. And then I'm like, God, I, I don't get how gracious you are. And on top of that, 28 acres for $250,000. How is that possible? And, and I remember just seeing it was so incredibly surreal. Now, you need to understand something, though. This, this property back in 2004, didn't look anything like what it looks like today. Uh, way back in the 1960s, uh, it was an orphanage. And it was complete with, with seven uh, large, beautiful stone buildings that had been built from like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, there were meticulously uh, manicured lawns, uh, beautifully maintained gardens from the designer who designed the sunken gardens down uh, in, in Harrisburg. And then, you know, some 40 years pass from the time that the children's home shuts down to the time that we buy it in 2004. And du during that time, it had become a, an overgrown jungle. Those beautiful stone buildings, they had been torn down, they had been uh, burned down. Some of them had fallen down. When we got here, it was just broken foundations, stone rubble all over the place. Those meticulously uh, manicured lawns, they're now vast expanses of briars and thickets and poison ivy and scrub trees. The, those manicured gardens now have uh, huge locust trees have grown up in the midst of them. I mean, it was an abject disaster, but you want to know what? It was our disaster. And we were so incredibly uh, excited to start cleaning it up. And so that's what we did. Within just a couple days of settlement, I, I grabbed my two middle school-aged sons, John and Mike at the time, and a couple members of our church family, and, and we started to just try to reclaim the, the land and turning the, all this chaos back into to order. And it was our goal to, to tame the effects of 40 years of just misuse and abuse and neglect. And we wanted to do it for the benefit of our church family. And we wanted to do it for our local neighbors. And at that time, we didn't, you know, we didn't have the money for heavy equipment or anything like that. So it was pretty much just a, you know, a couple of chainsaws, a weed whacker or two, a couple of bypass loppers. And we had this old beat up uh, church van and uh, a 30-foot long chain that we would like tie around the bushes and yank them out of the ground. And uh, it was hard work. We barely made any progress back then, but it was fun. But it was fun until the day that these flyers started showing up in the mailboxes of our neighbors' homes and on the telephone poles around the building. Lanker Manor, Oakley, and Bonnie Mead neighbors. The Living Water Community Church has purchased 28 acres of land at the end of Oakley Avenue and has begun cutting down trees in bold font. Please call and write this community church to encourage them to preserve acres of trees for a buffer zone between neighboring properties for the hundreds of old growth trees 
and for the deers, hawks, egrets, and other wildlife, take action today. And then they were kind enough to put our phone number and our address. Now, without warning, I'm engaged in an environmental battle with Living Water Community Church being the evil developer and I'm the nefarious leader of the company, basically. And, and rather than, than seeing us as, as good citizens who are improving the land, trying to make it useful for our church family and our neighbors, all of a sudden we're being accused of destroying the old growth trees and practically driving the local deer and hawks and egrets to extinction. That's what's happening. And what I experienced back in 2004 on a micro level at Oakley Avenue is being played out on a macro level throughout our world. I mean, there are serious things that are going on. How in the world do we balance human development and advancement, which has done some pretty remarkable things? You know, in 1900, the average worldwide lifespan was 31 years. 31 years. And by 2017, it had advanced to 72 years. During that time, we, we basically eradicated horrific diseases like smallpox and, and polio. Uh, during that time, antibiotics were created that, that saved countless lives of people. Yet in the midst of all of that, of all of that progress, how do you still protect and nurture the environment? I mean, is it even possible to do that? What do we do about climate change? Is it an existential crisis that threatens the very existence of humanity? Or is it some kind of manufactured crisis uh, designed to advance uh, a political agenda or, or perhaps uh, inflate the, the wallets of, of a small group of people or a small group of organizations? If it, and if it is real, are human beings to blame? Or is it natural causes or a combination maybe of both? And what about overpopulation and species loss? and waste disposal, and water quality, and air pollution. Those are, those are difficult environmental questions. They're at the forefront of this 21st century world that we live in. And every one of these, they're complex. They require thoughtful solutions. Uh, they're all saddled with both ecological and economic costs. They require people from all kinds of different backgrounds and political ideologies to figure out how to work together. Many of them are emotionally loaded. You start heading down a path, people get crazy nuts over some of this stuff. And none of them have any quick, easy solutions. And when solutions are discovered, what are the ramifications of those solutions? Because there's always a cost economic, ecological, cultural, even political. And as much as I would like to try to address uh, those particular topics that we just kind of ran over in detail, I've come to realize basically like every one of the topics that we've been addressing over the last five weeks, that it is simply impossible in a 50-minute message to answer all of the pressing questions. And the reality is I don't think that that's the best use of our time. And the reason I don't think it's the best use of our time is because before we can actually deal with these complex issues in, in a thoughtful, God-honoring way, we must first, as those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, establish what in the world does God actually expect from us as it relates to engaging in the environment. So that's what we're going to try to pull off uh, this morning. We're going to spend our time together laying out a, a biblical foundation upon which you and I can, can create a, a God-honoring approach to not only forming a gospel-centered perspective on the environment, but also actually acting upon that perspective. Because it's one thing to, to think that something needs to be changed. It's a completely 
another thing to actually do the hard work of change. So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going back to Genesis 1. I can't see it. It seems like we can't get out of Genesis 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the table around the room. Uh, you can pull it up on your smartphone. And uh, if you are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, smack dab in the very beginning of the Bible, very, very easy to find, starting in verse 26. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath and life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then skipping ahead to verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, before we get too far along, uh, one of the things that, that Pastor Ben and I and Mike Bongo that we try to faithfully do is is to give credit where credit is due. And, and I want you to know that this uh, particular message, I have relied heavily on two primary sources to, to guide my study of God's Word over the course of the last week and a half. Uh, the first is a massive volume by theologian Wayne Grudem entitled Politics According to the Bible. How in the world that this man possibly writes the magnitude that he does and the depth that he does is, is beyond anything that I can possibly imagine. And this book is enormous. It is thoughtful. He pumps out books like crazy. And then there's a, a second, much shorter book uh, that was written by a, a place called the Action Institute, which is entitled Environmental Stewardship in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. And both of these, are, they're excellent resources. I relied very heavily on them, very heavily on the bibliography that was in them to help me find other resources to work off. And now i got to confess to my shame that this is the first time, if my memory serves me correctly, that I have ever, in my nearly 20 years of pastoring, addressed the topic of a biblical view of the environment. And I say it's to my shame because as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, I should care greatly about the environment because God cares greatly about the environment. And as a matter of fact, of all the people on earth who should care about the environment, it's the Christian who should actually be leading the way because as we are about to see, we are the ones who God has specifically tasked with the job of caring for the environment. But sadly, that's not the case. Many of us have abdicated our responsibility for caring for the environment to folks who are called secular humanists. To those who don't believe in God, or if they do believe in God, they believe that he is distant and unconcerned about human affairs. We've, we've uh, delegated the environment to those who do, don't hold to the, to the fact that, that there is a uniqueness of humanity above the balance of creation. We have delegated the environment to, to those who see human beings uh, nothing more than some highly evolved creature who is hell-bent on destroying the environment. And the secular humanists, they have been happy 
to assume the role of the caretakers of the environment. But they've more, done more than just uh, uh, taken the lead in this. They have proposed that not only does Christianity not care about the environment, but that Christianity is the very reason why the environment has been damaged in the past and continues to be damaged now. In 1843, there was a German philosopher by the name of Ludwig Furach. And this is what he said. Nature, the world, has no value, no interest for Christians. The Christian thinks only of himself and the salvation of his soul. So 120 years later, uh, Princeton professor of medieval history, a fellow by the name of Lynn White Jr., wrote a, a seminal article, which is, has been a, a just, it's like the Bible for the ecological movement. And it's called this, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And, and what he uh, purports or, 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 or puts forward is this, that Western Christianity, that would be us, is the most anthropocentric, man-centered religion the world has ever seen. And what these two very influential, very intelligent men are saying is that the Christian notion that, that humanity is the pinnacle of God's created order and that we are called to take dominion over the earth is the primary reason for the world's ecological problems. This, brothers and sisters, is what many non-Christians believe who are deeply vested in the environment. It's what they believe about you and me. And tragically, many of us don't ever give them a reason to think any differently. But when you carefully look at God's word, what you will discover is that God not only cares about the eternality of our souls, but he also cares about the stewardship of his creation. And with that said, I want to give you my four main points this morning. I'm going to put them up on the board. Uh, a couple of them are long, and uh, I just want to give them to you up front so that we kind of know where we're going. Here's the very first one. It's this. God created the natural world. We're going to talk a little bit about that. That's the easy one to deal with up front. Number two is this. Humanity is God's special creation and is uniquely responsible to care for and develop the natural world, which God created as very good. Important thing to tack on to the end there, that God created as very good. Number three is this. Sin not only damaged humanity's relationship with God, but the natural world is now broken and suffers because of sin. When sin entered the world, not only did it wreck our relationship with God, but, but it wrecked the environment also. The environment got broken in the fall. Number four, Jesus restores humanity to a right relationship with God, and he heals the brokenness of the natural world. Forget the little typo in the butt that I left there. I'll have to fix that for the next service, maybe. So those are, the, those are the four places. That's where we're going uh, this morning. So, so let's start out here with God created the natural world. From the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, God makes it abundantly clear that he is the creator of all things. He comes right out and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can't get much clearer than that. But God the Father, he wasn't alone in the, the creative process. In Genesis 1-2, the very next verse, it tells us that God the Spirit was also involved in this. It says, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But it wasn't just God the Father and God the Spirit involved in the creative process. 
God the Son, Jesus, shows up too. In Colossians 1, it says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, don't let the phrase, the firstborn of all creation, confuse you. The Apostle Paul is not saying that Jesus is a created being, because if he was created, Jesus could not be God, because God has to be eternal by definition. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has all of the rights and privileges of the firstborn of the king the foremost of which is his sovereignty and rule over all things. And what these verses teach us is is that the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they were all completely engaged in the creation of all things. Now, as the creator of all things, God is also the owner of all things. Psalm 24, Deuteronomy chapter 10 are, are two places that testify to that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Deuteronomy 10, Behold, the Lord your God, or to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. You see, it is this fundamental truth, the fact that, 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 that God is both the creator and the owner of the universe is the basis upon which a Christian view of the environment is built. And it's this basic truth that keeps you and me from deifying the earth and worshiping it, which, tragically, is what many people who care deeply about the environment have done. For many people, Mother Earth has become their God. Earth Day has become their Easter, and Save the Planet has become their Great Commission. And there is a name for this faith system. It's called pantheism. It's an ancient faith system that that, that permeates the New Age movement right now, permeates a a, a lot of different spiritual movements. And I I want to put the definition up here so that you can see it, rather than me just read it to you. And it says this, Pantheism believes that God is all in all. God pervades all things, contains all things, subsumes all things, is found within all things. Nothing exists apart from God, and all things are in some way identified with God. The world is God, and God is, in, is the world, but more precisely, in pantheism, all is God, and God is in all. That screen to the pantheist is God. The guitar, the mic stand, the trees out there, the, tr- the chairs, the, the building, you were all God to the pantheist. And it rejects the biblical truth that God is transcendent. And what God's transcendence means is this. It's a a big theological word, transcendent. It means this, that God is much greater than and is independent of creation. In other words, God is not a part of creation, but he's made it and he rules over it. But pantheism doesn't just reject God's transcendency, it also distorts God's imminence. God's imminence is another big theological word, all right? That means that although God is independent of and above creation, that he is intimately involved in creation. Texts such as Job 12, Hebrews 1, attest to this. But ask the beasts, and they'll teach you. The birds of heaven, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea, they will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath 
of all mankind. But the fact that things live and exist is because God enables them to live and exist. Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, these verses teach us that all of creation is absolutely dependent upon God for its existence and its functioning. If God decides to take a vacation someday, or heaven forbid, he just wants to take a coffee break and he checks out, it all shuts down. Everything. The planet spinning, gravity happening, air, hearts beating, protons flowing, it all goes away if God checks out. But sadly, pantheism, eco-worship, deep ecology, or whatever you want to call it, rejects the God of the Bible as the creator, owner, and sustainer of creation. And because of that rejection, they have to end up worshiping something else. And the something else that they worship is nature, which is exactly opposite of what God intended. See, the Bible teaches us that the purpose in, God's purpose in creation was not for us to, to look at nature and worship it, but rather it was for us to look at nature and actually worship him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So when we find ourselves in a very, very, very dark place, in the middle of the night, far away from all of the lights of the city, and we look up into the sky, and we don't see like the seven stars that you see when you look up into the night sky in Harrisburg, which typically are all airplanes, but when you're in the middle of nowhere and you look up into that sky and you see the billions of stars, it causes you not to worship those stars, but to worship God. When you come to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and you look at the expanse of the Grand Canyon, which doesn't even look real because it is so big. You don't worship the canyon. You worship the one who created the canyon. When you watch a, a bald eagle majestically fly over the Susquehanna River, right there in Dauphin, where, the, where there's several of them, and you see the majesty of an eagle, you don't worship the eagle, you worship the one who created the eagle. And when you and I witness one of a million other breathtaking aspects of nature, what it's designed to do is to cause you and to cause me to fall on our knees in worship of God the Creator. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the starting point for a biblical view of the environment, that all of creation is created by God, owned by God, designed so that we might worship and glorify God. That's why it's there. But God didn't stop at that. The second point is this. Humanity is a special creation of God and is uniquely responsible to care for and develop the natural world, which God originally created as very good. Now, that's a huge uh, topic right there. I want to break it down into like little bite-sized nuggets, just kind of like the, the little Jimmy John minis that I've been eating lately, all right? The first one is this. Humanity is a special creation of God, 
we saw all of those truths, these truths that we're about to go through, the stuff that we read in the very beginning of the service when we all stand. Genesis 1.27, it testifies that humanity, you and I, that we are created in the image of God. Let me read it to you again, because you cannot hear this enough. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are many people, some of you sitting in this room right now, who do not believe that about yourself. There have been people, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers, spouses, boyfriends, and girlfriends, who have destroyed you. who have have, have made you doubt that you have any value and worth at all. And then Genesis 1.27 comes along and says, you know what, not only do you have value and worth, you have been created in the image of God. Every human being, no, no matter what disability they struggle with, no matter how beautiful they are, how tall, short, how plain they are, no matter what they have done, or what they haven't done, have been created in the image of God. You see, you and I, as human beings, we are special. We are unique as it relates to the entirety of creation because we have been created in the image of God. You know, a scarlet macaw, that's a very expensive parrot, by the way, might be beautiful. Gazelles might be graceful. Brown bears that are also called grizzlies, they might be powerful. You might have a silverback gorilla that you name Coco who has opposing thumbs and you teach them sign language. But none of them have been created in the image of God. Only human beings Only human beings bear the imago Dei. Now, be created in in God's image doesn't mean that we're identical to God, but it means that we are similar to God. This is not a popular concept in our postmodern, post-Christian culture, especially to those who embrace evolutionary theory. The editors of the book, a biblical perspective on environmental stewardship warn this. They say there is a growing movement that insists on biological egalitarianism, the equal value and rights to all life forms, and a mistaken notion that this will raise human respect for the earth. Instead, this philosophy negates the biblical affirmation of the human person's unique role as steward and eliminates the very rationale for human care for creation. The quest for the humane treatment of beasts by lowering people to the level of animals leads only to the beastly treatment of human beings. You see, if it's our desire to take better care of God's creation, the solution isn't to give humanity a pass by making them more like the animals, but rather challenging human beings to be more like God. That's the solution. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us that God does. God looks at humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, and he says, I have something very, very special for you to do something that nothing else in all of my creation can do. I'm making you uniquely responsible to care for and develop the natural world. Look again at Genesis 1. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said... Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, 
I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. What is God saying here? God is saying, Mike Leonzo, Kathy Leonzo, what? Gary, Terry, Dolly, Brad. He's telling Andrew. He's telling every one of us. He's saying this. I have given you great power over all that I have created. And I want you to use that power to care for my creation, to nurture it, to develop it, to protect it, and to ultimately use it in a way that all of humanity and all of creation may flourish under your stewardship. Now there's a very important theological principle in play here that we must embrace if we're going to get this right. The theological principle that I learned back in 2002 while watching the movie Spider-Man featuring Tobey Maguire. You might remember the scene. Uh, Tobey is going to head to the library. Well, Peter Parker is going to head to the library, but Peter Parker is, you get the whole idea, right? Peter Parker is going to go to the library, and he says to Uncle Ben, I'm going to the library. Uncle Ben says, hey, Peter, let me drive you. Peter says, no, I don't need to be driven. Uncle Ben's like, look, I want to drive you. So they get in the car. They're making small talk. They, they get to the library. Peter's about to get out of the car. Uncle Ben says, Peter, hold on for a second. Now, what has happened in Peter's life? Peter's been bitten by a, a radioactive spider. He's got all these uh, new spidey powers. He doesn't understand how to use them. He had been picked on in school by this big bully, and Peter uh, Parker is just a scrawny little guy, and using his spidey powers, which he doesn't know that he completely understands how to use them, he beats the crud out of the bully. And Uncle Ben has, has learned about this. And, and so Uncle Ben says to Peter, he says this, just because you can beat someone up doesn't give you the right to. Remember, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. And my friends, being created in the image of God and being given dominion over the fullness of God's creation is great power which comes with great responsibility. And as such, you and I are morally responsible to God as to how we steward his creation, which he has entrusted us. Now, let me make one final observation before we move on to the next point. After God has given humanity great power over creation and great responsibility for creation, God steps back. This is pre-fall stuff. Sin has not come into the world yet. He, he's tasked Adam uh, with working the garden, Eve to help him work the garden. They're in this beautiful, incredible place. God steps back, looks at everything that he's done, everything that he has declared, and with great satisfaction, he says what? It is good? No, it says it is very good good. The God of the universe looked at the plan, looked at the creation, and said, this is very good. Everything that God created, the plan which God had developed for humans to care for the creation, it was all very good. And then sin enters the world, and the wheels fall off, because that's what happens with sin. When you and I engage in sin, the wheels very quickly come off. You just ask a husband or a wife who have committed adultery on their spouse, and they will tell you how quickly the wheels come off when the sin is initiated. And this brings me to my third point. Sin not only damaged humanity's relationship with God, but the natural world is now broken and suffers because of sin. Now I want you to picture what is, has happened up to this point in the creation account. Everything is going very smoothly. It's going wonderfully. And then look at Genesis 2.15. This is pre-fall here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
So you got the first man. I imagine the first woman is involved in this. And they are doing what they have been created to do. They are tending the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. The soil is just right. It's got just the right water content. It's got just the right nutrients. There's no weeds. It's easy to till. Till the amount of sunlight is perfect. The temperature is just right. Plants are growing. You don't need herbicides. You don't need insecticides. There's no Roundup. There's none of that stuff going on, all right? The, the animals are hanging out with one another. The hawk is actually playing with a squirrel rather than trying to capture the squirrel. The cobra and the mongoose are not fighting together. And Adam and Eve are two very happy naked vegans. I put pause. They have to laugh at that one is what I wrote there. But it doesn't stay that way. It does not stay that way. We see God allowing Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. And there's high tension. Adam and Eve, they have everything that they could possibly want. And there's only one thing that is off limits. And that's the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's exactly what Satan tempts them with. The one thing that they can't have. They have everything. But the one thing you can't have, that's what Satan tempts them with. And that's exactly how Satan works in many of our lives. We are blessed beyond measure. And there's one thing that we don't have. And that's what we go for. So what will they do? Will they obey God and deny themselves? Or will they disobey God and deny him and follow their own, own ways? They choose the latter, and then sin wrecks everything. And suddenly Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with God is destroyed. They're banished from the garden Death enters the picture. The perfect relationship that, that they once enjoyed with God is, is now severed and desperately need in, of, in need of reconciliation. And it's a reconciliation which is far beyond anything that Adam and Eve can, or anybody else can manufacture to fix. Sin separated us so far from God that none of us can fix it. We can't be good enough. It's impossible. But humanity's relationship with God isn't all that gets messed up. Look at Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust. And to dust you shall return. Up to that point, Adam was going to live forever. That's the equivalent of going to the doctor and telling him that, tell, them telling you you have stage 4 cancer and you think that you are the healthiest person in the world. Adam's world is totally wrecked. But Adam's world isn't the only thing that gets wrecked here. The natural world is devastated because of humanity's sins. In the world, words of Wayne Grudem, the natural world was no longer an idyllic garden of Eden, but a much more dangerous and difficult place for human beings to live. Now the ground is difficult to, to take care of. Work becomes hard. Thorns and thistles, which is poetic language in Genesis here. It's poetic language for any bad thing that you can possibly think of. It has now entered the scene. Hurricanes, earthquakes, droughts, disease, anything. Plagues, poisonous snakes, plants, animals, hostile wild animals. Anything that brings pain, suffering, and destruction, it's now in play. 
before it was perfect. Now it's a minefield. Now this is extremely important for us to understand. The natural world that you and I live in is in a fallen state. We have to remember that. If you removed humanity, or at least greatly limited, as some people would like to do, the natural world is not going to return to the Garden of Eden. There are still going to be natural disasters. Disease is still going to kill things. Meteors are still going to strike the earth. And those human beings who, who still uh, survive, they're going to die of cancer, or there'll be murder and rape and exploitation. Why? Because the natural world, as we know it, remains fallen. Yet in the midst of this brokenness, God's call for you and me is to care for and develop the natural world. That still remains. That didn't go away. That, 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 that task that God has set us to, it is still here. We are called to tend God's creation and to make things better. Now, what does that look like? Well, some simple things, like putting in water systems so that people can have clean water. That makes things better. The fact that there are water pipes running all over the place here, and that we can just turn a spigot, it makes things better. Building sewer systems to protect people from diseases, it makes things better. Is it better to, to, to wake up in the morning and, and go put your cheeks on your toilet or to go to an outhouse? Which one you pick? Which one do you want? Installing electrical systems to make water and sewer systems possible. System, electricity that controls the temperature of our homes, that lets us refrigerate food, that powers hospitals and school buildings. That what? It makes things better. Figuring out ways to help our land produce more food and better food. It makes things better. Developing drugs that eliminate human suffering. It makes things better. Draining swamps that stop malaria or West Nile virus, that makes things better. There are countless things that human beings have done in the past, are doing now, and will do in the future that ultimately make things better. But you know what? We're not always going to get it right. We're going to mess up. And what we thought was good 10 or 15 or 20 years ago is not good anymore. In 2007, we built this retention pond out here designed to hold back all the water to keep it from going to the creek. That was like the best practice back then. Now things have changed because what was happening is retention ponds were holding back all of this water and, and they, they weren't releasing it at the rate that they needed to be released Bugs were growing in it, all kinds of stuff. Now they've changed things. We have a retention pond on this property nobody even knows about. It's over by this huge tree. Because why? It's buried underground. Because they decided that's a better way to do things. The old way wasn't good. This is better. We are going to make mistakes. We see this all the time. Very well-meaning people, very well-meaning businesses, they create stuff and they end up messing up things. And it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback on some of these environmental issues. But other people, they're bad people. They will exploit the natural world for their own benefit. Manufacturers carelessly pollute rivers. I mean, I can, I can remember as a kid, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. The river was burning. That's bad. Homeowners put used motor oil down the sewer. I can remember about eight, ten years ago, I'm leaving the church property. It's around dusk. A neighbor who will go unmentioned, because some neighbors are actually here, who didn't do this, by the way, 
I saw them with a clear container of motor oil walk to the wetland and pour it in the wetland to get rid of their motor oil. People do that. There are bad people out there. Bad people do bad things. That's why we taught you a couple weeks ago, this is why you need government. And when government functions the way that it's supposed to function, government needs to punish evil and reward good. It involves, that's how it needs to work in, in, in the criminal system, that's the way that it needs to work in the environment. Reward good, punish evil, that's the way to do it. Now, I could uh, talk so much more about this, but I, I wanna just give you a couple things that we could talk about. I could tell you how the Industrial Revolution polluted our skies and our rivers, while at the same time, wildly increased our lifespan. I could tell you how 18th century French farming, which was the greatest farming system known to man at that time, yielded about 345 pounds of wheat per acre. And that modern American farms now produce 2,150 pounds per acre, six times as much food. Or how about how in the 19th century an American would spend almost their entire day figuring out how to have food for the day. That's what you did. You had to figure out how to have food, not for next week. You had to figure out how to have food for today. What do we do now? We whip out our stinking cell phone, pull up the Jimmy John's app, order a number four, pay for it by credit card. It shows up at the church in like 10 minutes. That's the difference. Why can we care as much about the environment now as Americans as, as we do? Because we're not trying to figure out how to feed our stinking families. You know, in Brazil, they're cutting down the rainforest. Have you guys heard that right? Trees, they're clear-cutting stuff. You know, some of that is nefarious people. You know what some of it is? Some of it is very poor people who are trying to live, who are clear-cutting the forest, building, planting palm trees, because palm oil is the way that they make their money. And you know what? That's the stuff that was happening 200 years ago in America. And we can be so high on our horse about how terrible these other people are because people did the heavy lifting 200 years for us. And we're the beneficiaries of it. So we got to approach these things in thoughtful ways. Should the rainforest get cut down? No. Should the people in Brazil be allowed to raise themselves out of poverty? Yes. Not easy answers. But really easy to look down on other people. Let me quickly close with my final point. My goodness, where does time go? Jesus not only restores humanity to a right relationship with God, but he also heals the brokenness of the natural world. You see, one day, God is going to fix this mess that human sin has created, and he's going to do it through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Listen again to Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, and through him, don't miss this last part, to reconcile to himself all things, not just human beings, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the one who was with God the Father during creation, the one for whom all things were created for him and through him, the one who now holds everything together, the one who is above all things, that Jesus will reconcile to himself all things 
on heaven and earth through his blood. And as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, as we wait upon his return, we are called to diligently steward his creation, not just for the betterment of humanity, but for the betterment of the natural world. And when Jesus does return, oh my, what a day that will be. Because the promise in Isaiah 11 will happen. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall what? Graze. Salmon are going to be okay from the grizzlies. The young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, which the gazelle is very happy about. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That'll be an interesting one. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now the closing point of all this is what in the world do you do? The reality is, most of us know what we need to do. We know it. We've heard it. We need to use less stuff. We need to be wise about what we buy. We, you know, it, it, it's not rocket science. I mean, you talk about plastic and stuff like that. I'm thinking, I'm sitting up here drinking out of a plastic bottle. When at home, I've got a container I could have water in. Why do I do that? Because it's easy. But is it good stewardship? No. I mean, that's a little tiny thing. I get it. But when 900 people do little tiny things, differences are made. That's the way that it works. And when, when you and I actually realize we have responsibility for things, we're going to do things differently. Now, if you're looking for something big to do, I'd say pray about it. Ask the God of the universe to show you what you're supposed to do. Make a difference. Mike Bongo came into my office the other day. He says, Mike, you, you want to give people a, an environmental cleanup thing? Have you walked along the creek or through our wetlands lately? I'm like, nope. He's like, I'll tell you what. You tell folks if they want to come out one day and help me clean up the wetlands at Living Water to get rid of all the crap that's in them, send me an email. Mike B, not Mike at, Mike B at Living Water. That gets you to him, not me. And he'll take you out there, and, and we'll make a little bit of difference in our part of the world. But we can't abdicate our responsibility. It's our responsibility. Nobody else's. Ours. We're the ones who the God of the universe made stewards over his creation. May we do things differently. I'm going to pray and I'm going to dismiss you, okay? We're not going to do a closing psalm because I'm getting such a bad reputation downstairs with the kids. So, uh, Lord God, I, I come before you now and I am grateful for Lenore Alexander who uh, wrote a prayer that I might be able to pray for our church family. And so, Lord, I pray these words. Most gracious and merciful God, you are beyond our imagining. Our souls are revived by your perfect law. You set the earth on its foundation so that it will never be moved. You cover yourself with light, wearing it like a garment and sharing its brilliance with us. We have yearned for it, for it has been a long and dark winter. As the mountain snows melt and the spring rains fall, you make the waters gush forth between the hills as you did in those first days of creation when you gave birth to animals and plants and sea creatures and trees and birds that sing among the branches. In this time of recreation, you say to us, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And in response, we have the opportunity to make an allegiance. We can make an allegiance of one that is not with your spirit, a plan that is not yours or we can delight ourselves in you, Lord. So we clap our hands and we give you thanks with whole hearts. We say, yes, Lord, yes, and know an unspeakable joy, the joy of the indwelling by the Holy Spirit in our own small lives. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within us, and so may it be. Lord God, I pray for my friends now. I pray that you would 
Uh, cause me and them to be faithful stewards of that which you have entrusted to us. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God bless you guys. If you uh, have kids downstairs, go down and get those little crumb crunchers. If you'd like someone to pray for you, some folks will be up here to pray with you. God bless you. Go be kind to the world. Bye-bye.